This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case books Liberty, Equality, and Due Process, Cases, Controversies, and Contexts in Constitutional Law, and First Amendment, Cases, Controversies, and Contexts by Ruth Ann Robson. The case books are published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial, share-alike, 4.0. That means that the author has allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to Ruthann for writing these books and providing them to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike 4.0. I hope you enjoy. Welcome everybody to Section 4 of the United States Constitution Lectures. In this section, we'll be discussing race and equal protection. Strict Scrutiny and Caroline Products, footnote 4. It has been called the most famous footnote in constitutional law. And certainly it is the most famous one in equal protection doctrine. The case in which it occurred, United States v. Caroline Products Company, did not involve the equal protection clause or racial classifications. Instead, at issue was a federal statute regulating the shipment of filled milk or skimmed milk, to which non-milk fat is added so that it may seem to be like whole milk or even cream. The challenges to the law were based on a lack of congressional power under the Commerce Clause and a Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment violation. In footnote 4, Justice Harlan Stone wrote for the court, quote, There may be narrower scope for operation of the presumption of constitutionality when legislation appears on its face to be within a specific prohibition of the Constitution, such as those of the first ten amendments, which are deemed equally specific when held to be embraced within the 14th. It is unnecessary to consider now whether legislation which restricts those political processes which can ordinarily be expected to bring about repeal of undesirable legislation is to be subjected to more exacting judicial scrutiny under the general prohibitions of the 14th Amendment than are most other types of legislation. 
nor need we inquire whether similar considerations enter into the review of statutes directed at particular religious or national or racial minorities, whether prejudice against discrete and insular minorities may be a special condition which tends seriously to curtail the operation of those political processes ordinarily to be relied upon to protect minorities and which may call for a correspondingly more searching judicial inquiry. In Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka in 1954, the court ruled that U.S. state laws establishing racial segregation in public schools are unconstitutional. In a follow-up case, Brown II in 1955, the court famously stated that the lower courts should oversee desegregation working with all deliberate speed. Plaintiffs represented by various civil rights law firms, including the NAACP Inc. Fund, as well as the Department of Justice, brought desegregation lawsuits against school districts in federal court. Often there was a special master appointed by the federal court as an expert to develop a plan, and there were many consent decrees. Some school districts were undeniably hostile. For example, Prince Edward County, Virginia, closed its public schools rather than comply with Brown. The court found this violated the Equal Protection Clause in Griffin v. County School Board in 1964. Some school districts were cooperative. Many were a mix and fluctuated. In the litigation, decisions, and public discourse, rifts were not only between pro-Brown and anti-Brown, but became more nuanced. One such divide concerned the ultimate goal. Was it racial desegregation or was it racial integration? Another controversy centered on the role of the federal courts and their constitutional power to order remedies. Additionally, the relevance of time changed from accomplishing desegregation in public schools with all deliberate speed to tracing responsibility for segregated conditions, de facto segregation, back to mandatory legal or de jure segregation. The following three cases are also pivotal to this topic. In Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education in 1971, involving schools in the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, and surrounding Mecklenburg County in a district of 550 square miles, a unanimous Supreme Court upheld court-ordered busing of students and transfer of teachers to achieve desegregation. Writing for the court, Chief Justice Berger stated, quote, Absent a constitutional violation, 
there would be no basis for judicially ordering assignment of students on a racial basis. All things being equal, with no history of discrimination, it might well be desirable to assign pupils to schools nearest their homes. But all things are not equal in a system that has been deliberately constructed and maintained to enforce racial segregation. End quote. Nevertheless, the court continues, quote, the existence of some small number of one-race or virtually one-race schools within a district is not in and of itself the mark of a system that still practices segregation by law. The district judge or school authorities should make every effort to achieve the greatest possible degree of actual desegregation and will thus necessarily be concerned with the elimination of one-race schools. No per se rule can adequately embrace all of the difficulties of reconciling the competing interests involved. But, in a system with a history of segregation, the need for remedial criteria of sufficient specificity to assure a school's authorities' compliance with its constitutional duty, warrants a presumption against schools that are substantially disproportionate in their racial composition. Where the school authorities' proposed plan for conversion from a dual to a unitary system contemplates the continued existence of some schools that are all or predominantly of one race, they have the burden of showing that such school assignments are genuinely non-discriminatory. The court should scrutinize such schools, and the burden upon the school authorities will be to satisfy the court that their racial composition is not the result of present or past discriminatory action on their part. End quote. In Milliken v. Bradley, in 1974, involving Detroit and surrounding areas in Michigan, the district judge had ordered busing between the school district of Detroit, which had been subject of a 1970s state law resisting racial desegregation, and 85 other outlying school districts in three other counties, which had not been subject to any local or state laws regarding racial segregation in schools. The court, in a majority five-justice opinion by Chief Justice Berger, reversed the remedial busing order across districts. The court stating, quote, The controlling principle consistently expounded in our holdings is that the scope of the remedy is determined by the nature and extent of the constitutional violation. Before the boundaries of separate and autonomous school districts may be set aside by consolidating the separate units for remedial purposes or by imposing a cross-district remedy, it must first be shown that there has been a constitutional violation within one district that produces a significant segregative effect in another district. Specifically, 
it must be shown that racially discriminatory acts of the state or local school districts or of a single school district have been a substantial cause of interdistrict segregation. Thus, an interdistrict remedy might be in order where the racially discriminatory acts of one or more school districts caused racial segregation in an adjacent district, or where district lines have been deliberately drawn on the basis of race. In such circumstances, an interdistrict remedy would be appropriate to eliminate the interdistrict segregation directly caused by the constitutional violation. Conversely, without an interdistrict violation and interdistrict effect, there is no constitutional wrong calling for an interdistrict remedy. End quote. In other words, there must be a direct nexus between the constitutional wrong and the remedy. In Milliken, the problematical connection is primarily one of place. When the case returned to the court, Milliken II, in 1977, the court upheld the district judge's subsequent remedies that focused on reform only of the Detroit schools. In Freeman v. Pitts, the court considered developments arising from a 1969 consent decree seeking to remedy racial segregation in the DeKalb County school system in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. The question before the courts was whether the DeKalb County system had achieved unitary status and could thus be released from court supervision, despite the fact that the schools were not racially integrated. Writing for the majority, Justice Kennedy stated, quote, that there was racial imbalance in student attendance zones was not tantamount to a showing that the school district was in non-compliance with the decree or with its duties under the law. Racial balance is not to be achieved for its own sake. It is to be pursued when racial imbalance has been caused by a constitutional violation. Once the racial imbalance due to the de jure violation has been remedied, the school district is under no duty to remedy imbalance that is caused by demographic factors. If the unlawful de jure policy of a school system has been the cause of the racial imbalance in student attendance, that condition must be remedied. The school district bears the burden of showing that the current imbalance is not traceable in a proximate way to the prior violation, where resegregation is a product not of state action, but of private choices. It does not have constitutional implication. It is beyond the authority and beyond the practical ability of the federal courts to try to counteract these kinds of continuous and massive demographic shifts. To attempt such results would require ongoing and never-ending supervision by the courts of school districts simply because they were once de jour segregated. Residential housing choices and their attendant effects on the racial composition of schools 
present an ever-changing pattern, one difficult to address through judicial remedies. As the de jour violation becomes more remote in time and these demographic changes intervene, it becomes less likely that a current racial imbalance in a school district is a vestige of the prior de jour system. The causal link between current conditions and the prior violation is even more attenuated if the school district has demonstrated its good faith. In light of its finding that the demographic changes in DeKalb County are unrelated to the prior violation, the district court was correct to entertain the suggestion that DCSS had no duty to achieve system-wide racial balance in the student population. End quote. Some of these principles and cases will resurface in affirmative action doctrine later in these lectures. Evaluating Racial Classifications Racial classifications receive strict scrutiny, meaning the government interest must be compelling and the means chosen to serve that interest must be narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. In contrast to strict scrutiny, rational basis scrutiny requires only that the government interest be legitimate and the means chosen to serve that interest be rationally related to it. The United States Supreme Court does not always use this precise terminology, but it has clearly articulated it in a more than a few cases and it is evident in many others. This is the terminology used by almost all other courts and lawyers. Affirmative action and the standard of scrutiny. The first university affirmative action case to come before the court was Regents of the University of California versus Backey in 1978. It resulted in a highly fractured decision and highlights many of the doctrinal and theoretical issues that continue to permeate affirmative action. The University of California at Davis Medical School twice rejected Alan Back, a white man, for admission for two years. The medical school's admissions goal was 100 students, with 16 seats in the special admissions program. For applicants who wished to be considered as members of a minority group. He sued in California State Court on the basis of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, as well as the California Constitution and statutes. The California Supreme Court ruled in his favor on equal protection claim. The United States Supreme Court decision affirmed the California Supreme Court but there was no clear majority opinion. Justice Powell, however, rendered the judgment of the court, yet Justice Powell was the only justice in this majority judgment who rested his decision on the Equal Protection Clause. The other justices who ruled in favor of Back and against the university rested their decision on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. On the other hand, four justices, Brennan, White, 
Marshall, and Blackman, would have ruled that the university's special admissions program did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. Powell contended that strict scrutiny should apply, stating, quote, En route to this crucial battle over the scope of judicial review, the parties fight a sharp preliminary action over the proper characterization of the special admissions program. Petitioner prefers to view it as establishing a goal of minority representation in the medical school. Respondent, echoing the courts below, labels it a racial quota. This semantic distinction is beside the point. The special admissions program is undeniably a classification based on race and ethnic background. To the extent that there existed a pool of at least minimally qualified minority applicants to fill the 16 special admissions seat, white applicants could compete only for 84 seats in the entering class rather than the 100 open to minority applicants. Whether this limitation is described as a quota or a goal, it is a line drawn on the basis of race and ethnic status. The guarantees of the 14th Amendment extend to all persons. Its language is explicit. No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. It is settled beyond question that the rights created by the first section of the 14th Amendment are, by its terms, guaranteed to the individual. The rights established are personal rights. The guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal. Nevertheless, Petitioner argues that the court below erred in applying strict scrutiny to the special admissions program because white males, such as respondent, are not a discrete and insular minority, requiring extraordinary protection from the majoritarian political process. This rationale, however, has never been invoked in our decisions as a prerequisite to subjecting racial or ethnic distinctions to strict scrutiny. Nor has this court held that discreteness and insularity constitute necessary preconditions to a holding that a particular classification is invidious. These characteristics may be relevant in deciding whether or not to add new types of classifications to the list of suspect categories, or whether a particular classification survives close examination. Racial and ethnic classifications, however, are subject to stringent examination without regard to these additional characteristics. We declared as much in the first cases explicitly to recognize racial distinctions as suspect. Distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are, by their very nature, odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. End quote.
Justice Powell then considered the interests asserted and whether the means chosen, the 16 seats, was narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. The purposes put forward by the university were these. One, reducing the historic deficit of traditionally disfavored minorities in medical schools and in the medical profession. Two, countering the effects of societal discrimination. Three, increasing the number of physicians who will practice in communities currently underserved. And four, obtaining the educational benefits that flow from an ethnically diverse student body. Powell rejected the first interest as facially invalid because it prefers one group over another. He concluded that the university did not have a sufficient basis or competency to make a finding of societal discrimination. As to the third, he found that while a state's interest in facilitating the health care of its citizens might be sufficiently compelling to support the use of a suspect classification, here there was not a close enough fit because there is no empirical data to demonstrate that any one race is more selflessly socially oriented or by contrast that another is more selfishly acquisitive. Finally, Powell concluded that attainment of a diverse student body clearly is a constitutionally permissible goal for an institution of higher education. However, again, the university program was not sufficiently narrowly tailored for Powell. Stating, quote, It may be assumed that the reservation of a specified number of seats in each class for individuals from the preferred ethnic groups would contribute to the attainment of considerable ethnic diversity in the student body. But petitioners' argument that this is the only effective means of serving the interest of diversity is seriously flawed. In a most fundamental sense, the argument misconceives the nature of the state interest that would justify consideration of race or ethnic background. It is not an interest in simple ethnic diversity in which a specified percentage of the student body is in effect guaranteed to be members of selected ethnic groups. But the remaining percentage and undifferentiated aggregation of students. The diversity that furthers a compelling state interest encompasses a far broader array of qualifications and characteristics, of which racial or ethnic origin is but a single, though important, element. Petitioner's special admissions program focused solely on ethnic diversity would hinder rather than further attainment of genuine diversity. End quote. Powell lauded the Harvard College admissions program and appended a description of the policy to his opinion. During the 1980s, the increasingly divisive affirmative action debate included the legal issue of how affirmative action programs and policies should be evaluated by courts. The United States Supreme Court's opinions did little to solve the issue because the court itself was divided.
in Fully Love versus Kletznik in 1980. A six-justice majority upheld the minority business enterprise provision of the Federal Public Works Employment Act of 1977, which required that absent an administrative waiver, at least 10% of federal funds granted for local public works projects must be used to procure services or supplies from businesses owned by minority group members. The main plurality opinion by Chief Justice Berger, joined by two other justices, White and Powell, concluded that the remedial MBE program on its face did not violate the equal protection component of the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. Berger's opinion rejected arguments that the MBE program was under-inclusive or over-inclusive. Three other justices, in an opinion by Justice Thurgood Marshall and joined by Brennan and Blackman, concurred but concluded that the proper inquiry for determining the constitutionality of racial classifications that provide benefits to minorities for the purpose of remedying the present effects of past racial discrimination is whether the classifications serve important governmental objectives and are substantially related to achievement of those objectives. In Weigand v. Jackson Board of Education in 1986, the court held unconstitutional an exemption to a last-hired, first-fired collective bargaining provision between a teacher's union and board of education in Jackson, Michigan, that sought to maintain the current level of minority personnel. Weigand and other non-minority teachers who faced being laid off challenged the agreement entered into by the school board. The plurality opinion by Justice Powell, joined by Chief Justice Berger, Justice Rehnquist, and in part by Justice O'Connor, applied strict scrutiny and held that the layoff plan did not have a strong basis in the evidence that remedial action was necessary to address the school's own discrimination and that the desire for role models for students was not compelling. Note that Fulalove challenged an act by Congress and thus invoked the Fifth Amendment, and Weigand challenged an act by a subdivision of the state of Michigan and thus invoked the Fourteenth Amendment. Diversity and Education In Grutter v. Bollinger in 2003, the Supreme Court held that narrowly tailored use of race in admissions decisions to further a compelling interest in obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body is not prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause. In Gratz v. Bollinger in 2003, a companion case to Grutter, the court decided that the undergraduate admissions policy of University of Michigan violated the Equal Protection Clause. The admissions policy allocated points to candidates on a number of factors, high school grades, standardized test scores, high school quality, 
curriculum strength, geography, alumni relationships, leadership, and racial ethnic minority status. Applicants from an underrepresented racial or ethnic minority were awarded 20 points toward the 100 needed for admission. In a 5-4 opinion issued the same day as Grutter, the majority opinion by Chief Justice Rehnquist, joined by O'Connor, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas, found that the university's policy, which automatically distributes 20 points or one-fifth of the points needed to guarantee admission to every single underrepresented minority applicant solely because of race, is not narrowly tailored to achieve the interest in educational diversity that respondents claim justifies their program. Notable among the dissenting opinions is one by Justice Ginsburg, joined by Justice Souter, which pointed out a possible consequence of the court's opinion for universities that wish to promote diversity. She wrote, The stain of generations of racial oppression is still visible in our society, and the determination to hasten its removal remains vital. One can reasonably anticipate, therefore, that colleges and universities will seek to maintain their minority enrollment and the networks and opportunities thereby opened to minority graduates, whether or not they can do so in full candor through adoption of affirmative action plans of the kind here at issue. Without recourse to such plans, institutions of higher education may resort to camouflage. For example, schools may encourage applicants to write of their cultural traditions in the essays they submit, or to indicate whether English is their second language. Seeking to improve their chances for admission, applicants may highlight the minority group associations to which they belong or the Hispanic surnames of their mothers or grandparents. In turn, teachers' recommendations may emphasize who a student is as much as what he or she has accomplished. If honesty is the best policy, surely Michigan's accurately described, fully disclosed college affirmative action program is preferable to achieving similar numbers through winks, nods, and disguises. End quote. In Fisher versus University of Texas at Austin, the petitioner, who is Caucasian, was rejected for admission to the university's 2008 entering class. She sued the university and school officials, alleging that the university's consideration of race in admissions violated the Equal Protection Clause. The district court granted summary judgment to the university, affirming the Fifth Circuit held that Grutter required courts to give substantial deference to the university, both in the definition of the compelling interest in diversity's benefits and in deciding whether its specific plan was narrowly tailored to achieve its stated goal. Applying that standard, the court upheld the university's admissions plan. The Supreme Court held that because the Fifth Circuit did not hold the university 
to the demanding burden of strict scrutiny articulated in Grutter and Regents of University of California versus Back. Its decision affirming the district court's grant of summary judgment to the university was incorrect. That's all I'd like to talk about for this section. Thanks, everybody, and take care.